1: Just tell me, what's playing here? Star Wars,
0: right? Star Wars? Star Wars? Yes!
1: When I was a kid, they used to show these short films before the feature called serials, and they weren't very good in fact. They were actually kind of terrible in a wonderful sort of way because you could almost imagine the actors suddenly turning to look out at you and saying, look, we know you can tell we made these sets out of cardboard. And we know you can see the wires holding up our spaceships. But look how much fun we're having. And those stupid little films meant more to me than any big budget Hollywood extravaganza because they gave me hope. Cut. That with a little allowance. You okay? No, I'm not okay. A little ingenuity and a little stolen time with my dad's old wind-up movie camera, I could make movies too, and I did. Boy, did I. How much do you want to be a director, Patrick? I want it more than anything I've ever wanted in my life. Hi. Are you, are you really sure about this? Do you need to be one? you might just make it. You really think so? If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Remember something, life doesn't move at 24 frames per second, it moves a lot faster. And on this picture, you only get one roll of film.
2: Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Patrick Reed Johnson about his brand new-ish. It's been in the works for 18 years. His film, Five Twenty Two Seventy Seven. It's a very personal story about young Patrick Reed Johnson and how he saw Star Wars, got involved with special effects. Really an interesting story. Really great movie. We spoke about it. Gosh, back in 2017, the movie that exists now, quite a bit different, and you'll hear why that is and how all this stuff happened in this interview. I hope you enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoyed talking with Mr. Johnson. Well, gosh, we have been talking for a long time about 52577. I can't even
0: imagine how you feel. There were several dead bodies in the backyard from people who asked me recently, so what's next? I killed them and buried them. Now, you know, it actually is this pervasive sense of calm. Like, I don't have anything left hanging over me. Of course, I'm constantly getting besieged by what the hell took so long. You know, why did it take 18 years to make this movie? And it's as simple, I mean, the answer is kind of ridiculous for 18 years. Well, the first two years we had an issue that the, one of the original investors came up about $40,000 short on their investment, which meant we couldn't shoot the Hollywood sequence. So we had the world's longest <laughs> slug line that, <laughs> you know, the movie's going along and then 30 minutes of Pat goes to Hollywood. <laughs> but I mean, we managed to cut together enough footage, to raise enough money to really do the Hollywood sequence the way we wanted. And then we got it all done and people were like, great. Wait a minute. You've got this great soundtrack with Supertramp and Queen and Ringo star and 10CC and all, you know, all these artists, all right? Alan Parsons. How are you paying for that? And because uh, We got an incredible deal on the music because the artists liked the movie and Alan Parsons knew a lot of the people involved. And we kind of collapsed millions of dollars worth of licensing fees down to something affordable, but nobody was willing to pay for it. You pay for it and we'll release your movie. It literally took until MVD, who had been Eric Wilkinson, bless him, man. He came to the 2008 screening at the Star Wars Celebration 4 in Los Angeles. And afterwards he walked up and he goes, can I distribute this movie through MVD? And I said, do you have $200,000 to pay for the music? And he said, no. And then every year since then, he's called up and said, can I distribute your movie? I said, do you have (laughs) $200,000? And he's like, no. Until 2020, he calls up and he goes, can I distribute your movie? And I said, do you have? And he goes, yes. I convinced my boss to pay for the music. I mean, we literally We're looking around for that many years. Now, the cool part about that is for that many years, I got to tinker with the film and actually change it to what I didn't even know it was always meant to be, which was amazing. Because, you know, we teach something in film school, you know, called thesis where, you know, there's something inherently underneath the story you're telling that is the thesis of the film. And sometimes you don't really know what that thesis is, even when you've written it. You don't find it until you've gathered these scenes and these performances and the feelings and you start to put it together. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes you know exactly what your thesis is, but other times you don't. And it took all these years until just probably 2018, 2019 for me to go, oh, I know what I'm doing here and it's not what I set out to do. So that was really interesting. Because there's always that danger if you're
2: working on this for 18 years straight, that you're just going to lose sight of things. Were you able to kind of put it aside for a little bit and then come back
0: to it? Yes. In fact, what was really fascinating was, I mean, first of all, my investors, I mean, they were incredible. I mean, all of these years, they never said, okay, that's it. You're done. Put it out there. Whatever it is, we don't care. We want to, they were much more interested in being good and seeing it the way we all wanted to see it, right? Finished. Yes. But the money, as much as it meant to them, didn't mean as much as the thesis and the thematic. I mean, they wanted something great, or at least as great as we could do, you know, with the materials at hand. So they were really gracious and really kind and supportive all this time. But you're right, you know, there came a point. Right before I started teaching at UNCSA, there was a point where I just sort of said, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm, I'm stuck. I, the cuts I had were kind of mushy and I was trying to keep things I didn't need to keep and trying to get rid of things I needed. Luckily, I went to film school for, you know, nine years, which I'd never done. I'd never gone to film school, but I was teaching at a film school and I, and I had something to impart, but I was also learning. I was actually learning from watching. These young filmmakers struggling to find their theses, you know, and their and to find the meaning in their films, and to help them find that meaning, and it became more clearer and clearer to me what I needed to do to my film. So I finally actually retired early just a year ago, so that I could concentrate completely on finishing the film and and delivering it. But I felt like I had actually finally gone to film school. Because also my colleagues were brilliant and, you know, and they were all, I mean, people that teach at UNCSA are all like legit filmmakers that you've heard of and have done amazing things. And so I was actually sort of while being paid, I was being paid to go to film school by teaching, which is really interesting and and fascinating. And and there are a number of students who ended up working on the film, not because they were cheap labor, but because they were brilliant, you know, and they did really amazing work. There's a young directing student of mine, Daniel Smith who's now an associate producer on the film because he worked for a year and a half almost two years, just nonstop on visual effects and and reshoots and pickups and editing and all kind you know and a bunch of other you know Shaw Fisher, who was a cinematography student, came in and second unit directed and 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 did the cinematography for the visual effects unit that did all the, the Pinto takeoff sequences and the, you know, a lot of the miniature stuff that we did, the the willfully cheesy moments that we, we actually spent more time and money trying to create willfully cheesy super eight films than we did on the digital stuff that you don't even notice, you know, did you have a particular moment
2: when you finally figured out that thesis when you just said, ah, that's it. Was, was there that what Oprah calls the aha moment?
0: I think so. I think when my mother passed away, who's a main character in the film, you know, a big, a big deal, obviously, for a lot of reasons. if you have seen the picture, obviously. I realized how much I loved all these characters, all these people, Robin and Bill and all these people that knew more about me than I did at the time. Like my mother, like my little brother, like my sister, who ultimately delivers me to my ultimate destiny. You know, I mean, even though she pretends to hate me you know, and Steven and Herb Lightman. And what I needed was to write a love letter to them. I needed to thank them because had they not kicked me in the ass, (laughs) I would never have gotten in that car and driven off into the sunset as it were, because originally I think that I was just licking my wounds. And when I wrote it, I think I was just sort of feeling sorry for myself a little bit. You know, I'd gotten beat up, beaten up by Hollywood, partially my fault, (laughs) but also partially hollywood's fault and I, I think what happened was that i i realized that that movie was navel gazing that movie was look at me i was treated unfairly you know whatever you know and, and the more we were working on the film even during the shooting i started to realize how much i loved these people and it's funny because you know some of the real people are in the film playing older characters like you know the guy todd the theater owner is the actual bill He's an actual best friend from high school, who no, and, which is awesome. And the nurse that comes out and says, congratulations, it's a fist. That's the real Robin who swallowed her fist back in the day. So there's all these great cameos by the alumni of my life. And I just, when my mom passed away, I realized that the heroes of this movie weren't the main character. The main character is trying to figure out who he is. He's a little... Defensive and he's, he's beat up and he's, he's kind of caustic in some ways. You know, he's a little too big for his britches and he's a little holier than thou. And, you know, and he's got, he's, he's armored himself with defense mechanisms. And yet the people around him are like, dude, you're your own worst enemy. If you would just go, you've got abilities. You've got ambition. You've got, you certainly won't quit. (laughs) So we can't stop you. (laughs) So go. You know, and Robin, interestingly, is the character who says it first. She's the one who says, before anyone even thinks he's going to Hollywood, she's like, You're leaving, get out. And he's like, what? what? He doesn't even know he's leaving yet, but she does. I mean, it's not like
2: you could go back and do a whole lot of reshoots. I mean, what with your main character, John Francis Daly? He's a man now, he starts yeah. as a boy. There there was, there's
0: a review that came out today that said, obviously, just like most movies, this movie is cast with people who are much older than teenagers, but they play them well, especially John Francis Daly, who's 37, but looks 17. I actually wrote to him and I said, it was, he was 19, 20 years old when we started in 2004, you know, so, but, but there were many reshoots. There was, you know, the whole Hollywood sequence, all of that sequence was basically shot two years later after we raised money based on cutting together what we had and running around looking and then and then over the next you know decade we would pick up things here and there and john would send in you know lines and other actors would shoot stuff for us and luckily emmy chen doesn't age so <laughs> she she still looks like she did then and so anything we needed to do we we picked up as we could and then we started playing with certain tricks. I mean, there are some shots in the film right now where you know John's face is pasted on a double. Actually, quite a few shots in the film, um, uh, including well, I don't want to give them away. <laughs> Let people figure it out for themselves. Yeah, it's funny because we have three levels of, a vi- of visual effects in this film. We have what I call my John Noel effects, my my invisible effects, because John and I are old friends, and he runs ILM, and we've worked together on a bunch of stuff and best men at each other's weddings and stuff. And he he uh, he did four shots in this film that are you just wouldn't know that they were done by anybody which is exactly what you want and then we have our what i call the close encounters effects which are you know visual effects the way they would have been done at their apex of ability by doug trumbull or richard urich or these guys you know the guys at ilm locked off matte paintings not 3d matte paintings you know but good matte paintings. I mean, you know, Rocco Joffrey, who, who was one of the greatest matte painters still is in the business, who worked on Close Encounters and Star Wars and every other damn film you can imagine that had a matte painting did like 15 paintings for us on this film. And they're beautiful and you won't, you won't see them. You won't notice unless you're really looking. I mean, an effects person or a trained eye is probably going to go, wait a minute. And then we have. The willfully cheesy effects, where we, you know, we literally are trying to make it look like it was something I could do in my garage in nineteen seventy nine. You know, so
2: did I read right that there's actually a documentary about this movie that's been made?
0: Sorta. My ex girlfriend Morgan Flores, who's a brilliant artist and filmmaker, who went on the Hearts of Darkness tour with us in twenty twelve when we were out crossing the country in my Ford Pinto with chase cars filled with GoPros and and, and this giant rv called large marge it was this 1970s rv that was turned into a mobile editing room and my friend ed murphy and a bunch of other really fun people james gillette and these other people showed up and we crossed the country and it was meant to be like a three-week trip from wadsworth illinois to hollywood and it turned into like a three-month journey because we would get someplace and run out of money so we didn't even gas we'd have to like raise money on the fly on fundraiser on facebook and but we would go across the country showing the movie at places like, you know, Devil's Tower, Wyoming, KOA campground and right beneath Devil's Tower, you know, just just to raise awareness and try to fundraise and that kind of stuff to get the money to pay for the damn music. Right. We never raised enough to do that, but we did get awareness. And, 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 and Morgan and her documentary team shot what was meant to be a kind of Hearts of Darkness, you know, like Apocalypse Now's, you know documentary that Francis's wife made. About this journey to get this movie made, but by the time it was all over and all the drama and all the things that were done with it, at a certain point, Morgan decided, um, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a movie about my journey across the country with these crazy people, including Patrick, and how it affected her personally." So it's not really a documentary anymore about the film. It's more of a personal, the journey of an artist who, by the, I mean, by the time the th- thing was over, we'd broken up and we're still traveling together. In a know all alone with nobody else documenting this but us you know eventually maybe that that movie you'll get seen and 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 it's it's fascinating it's really fascinating it's but it's not so much about the movie anymore as it is more about an artist's journey you know which i think i think it's kind of profound i mean there's rumors already of a special edition blu-ray of this of our film and so maybe it could be an extra feature on that I, i think that'd be pretty cool yeah, because it's
2: come so close to being released before. I am seem to remember there was like 2013, there was stuff going on. 2017, I think, is when you and I talked. And you're like, well, it's sorry. pretty much done other than the effects. But yeah, then well, it yeah, it the
0: music. That was the, right. the issue. Yeah, because and, and the crazy part was, like in 2017, we did a little like stunt test release that wasn't even a really really a release but we chose 32 theaters just like star wars had on may 25th 2017 the anniversary you know and one day only sometimes one showing only and it was just to kind of get a reaction to the cut and also get it out there on a, on a great day and it was wonderful i mean we got great reviews we got sold out a lot of theaters it was really really fascinating but the crazy part was, you know, not only did we have to pay for the music still, and, and we had lots of effects we wanted to I mean the difference between that cut in 2017 and this one is just it's staggering. It, it's night and day. And I'm fortunate and we are all fortunate for that having happened. I mean, had we gotten the money and released the 2017 cut, I mean, I I'm sure people would have liked it, but I think it would have been tuned. That was the other real turning point for me. The 2017 screening and the trailer that we had for that attracted Star Wars geeks, for sure. Boys, <laughs> right? Geeks, boys, Star Wars geeks. What it didn't attract, and in fact repelled, were their girlfriends, their moms, their sisters, or or people that just weren't into Star Wars at all, who were like, ah, I don't, you know, <laughs> they were like, I will, you can't drag me. But they did drag them. And what happened was, we found out that even that cut, which is, and you know the difference now between the two, you know, that cut was far more appealing in many ways to women and mothers and sisters and girlfriends than it was to even the Star Wars fans. Because at its base, it's not about Star Wars at all. Star Wars is a MacGuffin. It's a thing. It's a grail. It's almost a distraction from what his real conflict is, right? And that central conflict and that love story and the love, the love of his friends and family for him is far more potent and powerful and interesting than he got to see Star Wars before anybody else. And we realized, and I realized, as I was moving from that cut to this one, that's my movie. That's the thesis. The thesis is about when you don't trust your own feelings, you don't use the force and and go with your feelings. If you don't have people around you to kick you in the ass, you'll fail. Unless you can somehow find it in yourself with no support to go forward, but I had more support than I ever knew until, till I knew that day, that final day. You know, it says in front of the movie, I want you to think back to that, that day, that moment when you knew that is the full circle thing of the film is that he goes through the whole movie, not knowing until that moment, that day when he knows and he knows precisely because. There have been people shouting it at him the whole time, and he didn't accept it. And he didn't believe it as much as he says he's confident, as much as he says he's got this. And if I could just get a chance, he's afraid. He's afraid. My old friend, Ray Bradbury, used to say, and I use this with any young person who's terrified of, of, of taking the step forward. He used to say about anything or any ambition, any fear you have not succeeding, he used to say, jump. Build your wings on the way down. And he's exactly right. There's no other philosophy I can I can believe in than that. Because when I jumped in that pinto, ultimately that's what I did. Didn't have anyone waiting. I didn't have I mean Herb Lightman was there, but he wasn't gonna it's not like he could call up somebody and say, give this kid a job. He wasn't that guy. I would never have arrived at the cut you've seen now. And I never did until I lived enough. and and felt enough. And like I said, the passing of my mom who loved the movie even though she said I was never that loud and we were the whole family's like you were louder. (laughs) It took that long and it took it it really also took me watching film students rise and fall and succeed and fail hopefully helping them navigate things that no one could help me navigate. And some of them navigated it and some of them crashed and burned and some of them are hugely successful now. You know, you just... I mean, I used to say to them, the only people I know that don't make it in the film industry are those who give up. I, th- I think the biggest problem is immediate gratification. People want, I've heard students say, I'm going to go to LA for six months, a year, and see how it all works out. If I get a movie, grade, If not, I'll move on. I'm like, okay, <laughs> just save yourself a bunch of time and heartache and move on. Yeah. If you're not willing to wait five years or 10 years or 20 years to do that, then you don't really need to do it. You're just kind of thinking it'd be cool to do it. So when do you have actual picture lock or is it locked? Oh, it's locked. As As much as anything can ever be locked. There's, there are people at MVD. I hope she sees this. There's this wonderful human being named Tiffany, uh, who's the uh, assets manager who I have tortured over the last few months saying, Oh wait, I know I delivered the final final lock but we have a little change oh wait you know every like couple of days and she's like "Ah," you know so it is all it is locked for now it will change in fact I did a special edition cut a little bit for I was invited by Lucasfilm and ILM just a few weeks ago to go up to the Letterman Center and show it to the ILM folks who you know are the perfect audience and so I did a a kind of a special extra Easter egg kind of cut but we are going to do a special edition and we're going to do, we'll have, I think on the special edition Blu-ray, we'll have the cut you've seen. And then we're going to have a much longer cut. Not because I think the movie needs to be longer, but because there are these really wonderful uh endings to certain other aspects. Like Todd, the football player, has an ending that is not in the current cut. And there are some one or two other little fantasy moments that are so special and fun. That we'll do that cut, and so you can choose what you want to watch. But you know, and then we'll have a bunch of other deleted scenes. Although the funny thing is, is there's been talk about doing it either two more films: "The Empire Strikes Pat," that's five twenty five ninety. You know, when I'm just uh, releasing "Space Invaders," and then there's five twenty five zero four, "Return of the Alumni," which is where all my friends get together and make this movie. <laughs> but there's also talk about a series where you would have John Francis Daly at age 38 in Hollywood in the nineties, in the midst of his career with flashbacks to the five other hours of footage we have of John at 19 or playing 17, you know, these great moments that you can intersperse with like this mad men for the nineties, you know, in cinema for geeks, which could be really cool.
2: I know we have to go soon, but you brought up space Invaders, and I just have to tell you, and I think I told you this via Facebook before, but Space Invaders, one of the best end songs ever in the entire world. How did that come about? Because I just, I used to clean movie theaters and I loved cleaning the Space Invaders. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so David Russo may be certainly my favorite collaborator ever in terms of, of soundtrack work. You know, we've done, well, let's see how many films, three films together. He's a genius and he's also, he's got a great sense of humor. And he was actually introduced to me by a guy named Kirk Thatcher. Does that name ring a bell? It doesn't, offhand. No. Okay, so Kirk is a big Henson guy. He directed a bunch of the TV things. He just did the the Halloween special that they did. He he just did. He just appeared in. Was it Werewolf by Night? In a is that crazy? Well, Kirk Thatcher looking guy. <laughs> so Kirk was the voice of Scout in a Can Spiff, the little robot dude. And Kirk and I have known each other forever. And we worked together at the Henson Company and everything. And he introduced me to David Russo. And so when I was looking for an entitled title theme song, I said to David, can you do an end title theme song? And he goes, yeah. And he didn't tell me, but he got Kirk involved. So Kirk's the one going, blah, 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 butthead. And, you know, <laughs> and he's the one he's like, you know, Martians are taking them. That's Kirk. Right. So good. And Kirk is also the punk on the bus in Star Trek Four okay yeah i totally know now who he is yeah because he was leonard nimoy's assistant he used to work at ilm he worked in empire he's a he's all over the map does everything well really well and he's just a great guy so that so they presented the demo of this song to me and i was like david did and i didn't even know kirk had been brought in but i i heard it and i was like oh my god that's kirk i can tell you know you know and we just, I mean, we loved it. I mean, the funny thing is, is again, like I said, David Russo has a really great sense of humor. So there were all kinds of cues in the film and the soundtrack, which is being released. I'm actually doing an interview either tomorrow or the next day to do liner notes uh, for a release of the space invader soundtrack, which fantastic. is fantastic. Great soundtrack. I mean, David's work and David's work on this film on 525. I mean, it's. It's really profound piece of work. You know, he, he, there are cues in here that are just heartbreakers. There are ones that are really humorous and there are ones that, that just take you into these wonderful spaces. And, you know, and the funny thing is, is I kind of boxed him in by saying there are these two themes that Alan Parsons created on these songs that were actually from the eighties, but I thought, I don't care. It's a meta film. It doesn't matter if it takes from the future, the past, it doesn't, you know, it's all a memory. And he took these themes and interwove them into the themes that he was creating and created this wonderful amalgam of all of them. And it it just works beautifully. I'm just so, so proud of of that soundtrack, which I think we're also going to have, I think MVD is planning doing a release of that soundtrack as well. Where
2: can people go to find out where they can buy the Blu-ray, see the movie in theaters, all that fun stuff?
0: MVD's website is a good place. We're constantly announcing it, you know, me and my social media, but but i would mvd i think has all the all the scoop on that i can tell you that the uh, the dvd and blu-ray are already available for pre-order on amazon and it ships on the 22nd of november it comes out on um december 15th it starts streaming on showtime and then mm-hmm. all over the world it's going to i mean it's going to be everywhere so Well, I'm so glad that people are finally going to be able to
2: see the movie. And Mr. Johnson, it was such a pleasure talking with you.
0: It's great to talk to you again, Mike, and let's keep it up. Maybe we'll have more to talk about if if we do this series or the the sequels. Sounds good. All All right. right. You take care. Thanks again. Bye, Mike.